am Dr. Thomas Slavin, Senior Vice President of Medical Affairs for Myriad Oncology. Welcome to Inside the Genome. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we have Dr. Tua Powell. She's an Associate Director for Cancer Health Disparities and a Clinical Geneticist at the Vanderbilt Ingram Cancer Center in Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Powell. Thank you. Yeah, so we've known each other for some time. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about the coronavirus and how it's affecting uh, research and clinic and an academic cancer center. Uh, Dr. Powell uh, has a longstanding history as a physician scientist at her center. And yeah, just to, to start things off, Dr. Powell, what have you been seeing as some of the opportunities and challenges of coronavirus, particularly as it's affecting the research side? So I think what has happened is on the research front, there has been slowdown for the wet labs. So for the laboratory researchers, a lot of the resources at our center have been deployed for the coronavirus-related efforts. So whether it's virus testing or developing new methodologies or actually doing the clinical testing, that has become one of the foci for some of these labs. On top of that, we probably have a lot of personnel on the research side, on the wet lab side, where there really isn't as much for them to do at this point if they cannot be deployed for some of the coronavirus-related research efforts. Mm -hmm. And can you explain what wet labs are, just to some of the listeners, since we have a, a wide audience? Oh, absolutely. So if we think about wet labs, it's really working in the laboratory with specimens or samples versus when we think about working in the dry lab, it would be working with people either remotely or in person. So what I would say is even though the wet lab efforts have slowed down, some of the dry lab efforts really are conducive to remote work processes. Mm -hmm. And your um, research is mostly dry lab. Correct. Yeah. Uh, what I would say with the challenges with my research is that we are having our personnel work remotely. So when it comes to recruiting individuals for research, we can do that over the phone or through the internet. But when they send in a sample, that would be to our offices, and again, because we don't have anyone there, that yeah. has been something that has certainly slowed down. Yeah, yeah. And so, but the dry lab research then you're doing, some of the data analysis and things like that, it sounds like maybe this is an opportunity time to actually crunch some numbers and maybe do some publications if things are slowing down on the uh, patient recruitment standpoint. Is that what you've been experiencing? Oh, absolutely. And on top of that, what's happened is with all of the focus nationally on many, you know, broadly many research efforts, and there have been many, many administrative supplements, grant supplements that have come out in this timeline, even predating the knowledge about the pandemic. So many of us have been super busy with writing proposals uh, just because of the timing of when these proposals came out. Yeah. And have there been some um, COVID-19 or uh, coronavirus specific proposals as it relates to cancer or cancer genetics? Yes, absolutely. So related to cancer, there have been. So with many of us who have grants, 
there are, are several supplement opportunities to mm. submit administrative supplements that are focused on COVID-19. So mm. adding on additional aims to further the research in this arena. Yeah, that's great. So it sounds like you're, you're staying pretty busy on that front. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think because there's two hats that I wear, both clinical and research, on the research side, I can't say that things have slowed down at all. Mm -hmm. I think there's been a lot of things that have been coming out. I think it's really been very easy to collaborate across the institution and to collaborate beyond the institution because we have remote ways of communicating through Zoom or other yeah. technologies. Similar to how we're doing this podcast right now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what uh, has some of the wet lab work though I mean, maybe at some point that will start uh, affecting you, you know, and your ability to actually garner data then for your dry lab work, if it's slowing down substantially. So that's a great question, actually. Um, I have a study focused on young African women with breast cancer. That's a statewide study where we collect both saliva samples as well as tumor specimens for genomic testing. Now, even our samples that we've collected for saliva for DNA extraction, we got the saliva specimens, but the extraction piece yeah. cannot get done right now because our core lab is not processing those samples. So I would say, yes, absolutely. Some of my research has been put on hold because until we get the extraction done, we cannot send it for additional testing. Mm -hmm. And as the state's are opening up, especially Tennessee. As your center mentioning that they're going to relax uh, some of the wet lab restrictions at the moment, or are you getting the sense that it's not going to change uh, for some time? No, I, I am getting the sense that they are going to start opening things up. We have a very robust clinical trials enterprise. And again, we have cancer patients that have had some delays in their treatment, whether it be chemotherapy, whether it be surgery, um, whether it be the need to get onto a clinical trial, depending on what disease they may have. We are really focused on ensuring we stay in line with our state objectives. Our leadership is very much in, in touch with the state officials, the city officials, to figure out what the next steps are. I think we will open up, but it will be very slowly. It will be very intentional. Our cancer center director is actually also the executive director for research across the medical center. Her name is Jennifer Petenpole. So again, at the cancer center, there are many trials open, like I already mentioned, but I would say that's one of the more robust service lines. So again, I think that the clinical trials, the way we open up will be very intentional, but they will open up. It will just be slowly. Yeah, yeah. Which also has a good segue then into how it's affecting you and your clinic. Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about, you know, what you do in clinic and, you know, how this uh, pandemic has affected your ability to see patients? Certainly. So I'm, as a clinical geneticist focused on inherited cancer predisposition and risk assessment, I see patients that are referred with or without a cancer diagnosis to determine what their risk may be for 
having inherited cancer and then talking to them about the pros and cons of testing, getting a three-generation pedigree, and then ordering the test that best suits them, and then going through and discussing the results with them once the results are available and putting them into the context of what it means for them, what it means for their family. Mm -hmm. So what generally happens with genetics clinics is we do a pre-test appointment where we meet with a patient to do the assessment, and then once the results are back, we do a post-test appointment for results, disclosure, and next steps. What we did very early on is we converted our in-person visits to telemedicine visits. And that was possible because we already had robust infrastructure in place in clinic to be able to offer services through telehealth. We already have telehealth mechanisms built into our electronic health record through which we can automatically do these visits. Because a lot of what you do through telehealth is logistics of being able to connect with the patient. So a lot of that was already automated for us. So we have been able to continue our practice. I don't think any of us are any less busy because we were able to convert the majority of our visits to telehealth visits. What I can also say is it's been a welcome change for our patients. In the past, we were limited with the telehealth visits that we could do because it would be very much insurance dependent. Some insurers cover telehealth, others do not. But cancer genetics actually affords a great opportunity to do visits by telehealth because we don't often need to examine our patients. Mainly it's information sharing. It's nicer with a video screen because you can see what the patient is you can see the expressions for the patient but you can also screen share and sometimes some of the information that we share with patients can be complicated so screen sharing is certainly something that i think is useful for some patients so we think it's been a really positive change the other thing i would say is we have a really large catchment area because vanderbilt the Vanderbilt Ingram Cancer Center is right in the center of Tennessee, but our catchment area is the entire state of Tennessee, uh, Western Kentucky, and Northern Alabama. That's where about 90% of our patients come from. So what that means is patients travel several hours to see us often, and this has really made it much easier for them to see us. We have a large rural population as well. I think about 30%, over 30% of patients seen at our cancer center come from uh, rural counties. And again, I think that it has made it easier for them to see us. I know that there are issues with broadband in certain communities, but thus far it has not a big challenge. And, and from a billing perspective, are you right now trying to do a face-to-face, at least through a video, or does phone by itself work from you know, a visit perspective that can be counted as something towards telehealth? So we are doing it through video. So we have a, an institutional Zoom license. It's HIPAA compliant. What we've been advised through our leadership is do it through the regular means, but if something happens with connectivity during your visit, just switch it to a phone mm-hmm. visit. And there are modifiers that we're using to reflect that it is a visit through telehealth. But the main thing is we do it as 
a video conference for most patients, unless that technology does not work, in which case we can convert it to phone. Yeah. Now for the genetic testing with uh, the people that are remote, um, are you coordinating remote genetic testing for them as well? Yes. So what we do is we will have the labs send out either a blood draw or a kit for saliva collection, and that goes directly back to the lab. So we've developed processes internally such that our medical assistant keeps track of the samples that are ordered or the tests that are ordered and sent out. Mm -hmm. That's great. And then the results come back to you and then uh, your team calls, then sets up probably another visit with the patient or do the results go to the patient? So our results, we already contract with the patients on the front end. So I'll give you an example. And this is something that we were doing before as well. We all have very limited time to see patients and we want to be able to benefit as many patients as we can. So for patients that are really straightforward where there's not a large personal or there's not a family history that would be of additional concern, we would just send them a message through our messaging system that their results were negative or their whatever their results were, and then they could follow up if they chose to, but they've already gotten their results. We also share it with their physicians. For patients that are positive, again, we will still share it through the electronic messaging system, which is um, embedded within our EHR, but those are patients where we will ask them to come back for a follow-up. Yeah, Yeah. that's great. And so the feedback from the patients have been very positive, it sounds. Yes, the patients, it's been very well received with the patients. What I would say is this is no different from what it was before because we've been doing telehealth visits for the Mm -hmm. last few years. The rate limiting step was that there were only certain insurers that covered the visit, right? So that's what limited us from expanding further. But at this point, what we've done is we've been able to do all of our visits through telehealth. The other thing that I hadn't mentioned is because of this pandemic, we've also been able to get emergency licensure in our neighboring states. So, you know, whether it's Kentucky, Alabama, Mississippi, we have certain privileges in those states as well to be able to offer these services. Because as you know, one of the rate limiting steps for being able to do telehealth beyond one's own state is the licensure issue. You can only do these visits for patients who reside in a state in which you have licensure. So Mm -hmm. it really is dependent on the patient's location. Yeah. So, you know, we can wrap up our podcast with just overall, what kind of tidbits, either on the research side or the clinical side, would you have for people that maybe aren't well known or, you know, anything that you found just a very high yield in the last um, six to eight weeks that have, has come across as uh, something you want to share with people that uh, maybe, you know, either highlight something we've already spoke about just in the last little bit here, or if there's something else you want to you know, bring into the discussion. Um, Sure. So I think that we all know that we want to make genetic counseling and testing as broadly available as possible. I think sometimes there are policies that preclude that from happening. And the silver lining of this pandemic, if there is even one, is that I think it's shown us that we can be effective in delivering services 
very broadly without compromising patient care when it comes to genetic counseling and testing. And really one of the barriers is that policies lag behind what we know we can already do. So I'm hopeful that this will be the start of being able to make genetic counseling and testing more broadly available across the population because we know that there are expanding indications for genetic counseling and genetic testing. It really does impact patient care at this point, and that includes both surgery as well as what drug are you going to treat this patient with because there are FDA indications now for drug treatments that are informed by germline genetic testing. So if there is a silver lining here, I would say that it has forced us to be more innovative in delivery of our care. It's forced us to get processes in place such that we can deliver this care to the patient's home. And I'm hopeful that this will continue beyond the pandemic because I think it's just the right thing to do for patients and especially patients who are underserved or coming several hours to see us. They really mm -hmm. don't need to. We should be able to provide it to their home. Yeah. Yeah, especially an immunocompromised cancer population. Yeah, I mean, hopefully this does uh, become a long-term solution to some of our uh, care access issues. Thank you so much, Dr. Pau, for being on our podcast today. I hope our listeners learned a little bit about some of the challenges and opportunities that pertains to cancer research and also cancer genetics clinic and seeing patients. And uh, I just really want to sincerely say thank you. And I hope people, if they like this, feel free to keep sharing it with their friends. So thank you very much, Dr. Powell. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Take care.